0: Hello and welcome back to The Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg, and on today's episode, we've got the summer buzz. It's been a busy month here in the 805, and coming up this weekend is the 49th annual Santa Barbara Summer Solstice Parade, a longtime summertime staple for the community. And earlier this month, Bloomsday, an annual book celebration of the influential and controversial novel Ulysses by James Joyce. This went down on June 16th at the James Joyce pub on State Street. Now, the indie pod has the summer buzz about what Santa Barbara has been up to this June. But first, speaking of buzz, we sat down with a local beekeeper who chatted with us about the importance of beekeeping on the coast. We are a fruit basket of America, and these little honey bees play such an integral part in our very own food production, where bees can be traced back to a third of what we eat. The indie reporter Chloë Spelius took a tour of some local beehives. Here's the story.
1: This is the sound of hundreds of little honeybees buzzing inside of a beehive, working a way to make their precious honey. Bees are direct contributors to food security. One out of every three bites of food is traced back to the efforts of a honeybee. Fruits and vegetables start off as flowers, and flowering plants depend on pollination to mature into fruit, so you can thank the bees for the strawberries in your salad. According to a study conducted by the Food and Agriculture Organization Department of the United Nations, bees contribute to a third of the world's food production. Today, I'm interviewing a beekeeper located right here in Santa Barbara. We will be talking about the dynamics of a beehive, the challenges and threats bees are facing, the effects winter storms have on the hives, and the importance of beekeeping.
2: My name is Jose Luis Janes. came to Santa Barbara about 20 years ago. Um, i am been working on farming, uh, beekeeping, um, taking care of horses and all kinds of stuff. I love the outside life. Uh, bees are one of my favorite animals here in this town.
1: Thank you so much. Why did you start beekeeping? What inspires you to take care of these creatures?
2: I started uh, when I was in high school down in Mexico. I learned how to uh, take care of the bees how to take care of them the proper way they love you, they give you their honey. So we start working with them and see how beautiful they are, how special they are, and how much we can get out of them.
1: Can we dive into the complexity of a hive? How does it work? Where does this honey come from?
2: Hive itself is, uh, we have three boxes, which one is, uh, they call it the hive. Those are big frames where the queen is usually is laying eggs. On top of it, we put what they call it, honey supers. And it's basically um, when mama is coming into the grocery store every weekend, bringing food for the week, the bees are the same way. They bring honey into the hive for the whole winter. They don't know how it's going to be. It's going to be a really hard winter, so they're going to have food in the hive. So the hive has a queen, each one has a queen, some of them have two, and then they have the bee workers, the bee workers, which are amazing, amazing how much they work working into the hive, and the drones, where the only, the only, his only job is eat and mate with the queen.
1: Can you explain and describe to our listeners the ecological significance that bees have in California, and more specifically here in Santa Barbara?
2: Well, the bees are uh, one of the most important things in the natural system because without a bees, uh, the plants will not pollinate to each other. So they are like really important in the whole area of uh, you know planting and flowering and uh, fruits uh, because there is a lot of a lot of trees, a lot of uh, trees that they do not pollinate themselves. So the bees, what they do. When they fly from flower to flower, they are pollinating, and they don't even know. They are collecting honey, and they are pollinating all the fruits and uh, flowers that we have around the world. In Santa Barbara, is really important. Whole, the whole world is really important, but in Santa Barbara, most of it, because Santa Barbara produces a lot of percentage of the, of the, um, of the food that we all eat in the United States.
1: It's a really important point you bring up. California, Santa Barbara, Ventura, Oxford area is considered the fruit basket, I suppose.
2: Yes, it is. Uh, and then uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, most of them come from here, from this area. For, for us, it's just uh, important.
1: And I can imagine all of the fruits and vegetables, they all trace back to the efforts of the honeybee.
2: Yes, they do. Believe it or not, uh, they do a lot of work we don't know. A lot of stuff has been done without us knowing.
1: As a community, we recently experienced an extreme and unusual winter in terms of rainfall. Did this affect bee populations and honey production?
2: Yes, um, you know, it's been tough. It's been tough for the bees the last five, six years. First, we had a draw, so they don't really have much honey around. Now we have a big, huge um, winter with a lot of water, a lot of storms. So one of the problems that we're facing right now is the weather. All this fog and all this rain, you know, it is good for natural, but it is sad because it's washing off all the honey in the flowers, which the bees needed. So it's been a challenge, but uh, little by little they have been working bringing honey into the hive.
1: What are the challenges that honeybees are facing in today's modern world?
2: The bees are facing a lot of challenges. The weather, the fire that we have here in California, all the fires, Um, but one of the most important things are the pesticides that people are spraying on the plants, on the roses. So that kills the bees and um, that's our enemy number one here in these areas for the bees.
1: So you're saying that if a bee pollinates a rose that has had pesticide sprayed on it, that that bee will ingest the pesticide, carry it to the hive, therefore affecting entire beehives.
2: Yes, exactly. And a lot of them don't even make it to the hive. Um. Uh, they just die on the way. Uh, we had um, a study here in Santa Barbara about, you know, four or five years ago that they, uh, they found dead bees everywhere. So somebody had the idea of putting them in a plastic bag. So they took them over to UC Davis and they find out that this, out of this bee, dead bee, there was a larva coming out that became a fly. So we're still doing that, researching for that to see what the fly is gonna do or what is the fly about. Uh, but definitely they, they face a lot of, a lot of problems. All over, the, all over the world.
1: What are some things that us as beekeepers can do to help these bees face these challenges?
2: Uh, most of them is keeping them uh, in a safe place where they can have a nice, happy house, a nice, happy place to live. And then, uh, you know, what I do is uh, we don't really harvest all the honey. Like, they don't get too much stress. We only harvest whatever it is. If they have 50%, we only harvest 20%. That way we don't stress them and they keep working hard.
1: Thank you. Are there any worries or concerns about future honeybee populations for our next generation?
2: Yes, there is a lot of worries about concerns uh, because if we don't start taking care of the bees right now uh, and we don't teach our our other generations, our youngers, to take care of the bees, to love the bees, there is going to be a lot of problems in our our fruit supplies and our fruit growers. Remember, the bees do a lot for us.
1: For our listeners who are interested in beekeeping and maybe starting their own backyard hive, what is your biggest piece of advice for them, and do you encourage them to do so?
2: Yes, absolutely, I do. I encourage everyone, you know, whoever can have a a nice jar and wants to learn about bees. It is the best thing that you can do. You can get natural, organic honey for your family, and you can help the world to get, you know, more flowers, more food. Uh, Definitely, this is uh, something that we all need to do. Uh, Little by little, um, we have to bring the bees back. There is not too many bees in the whole world. It's amazing how much we can learn from those little animals. And they don't don't care about working hard. (laughs) The only thing that I can tell you guys is that don't be afraid to the bees. If you see them in the flowers, they are doing their job. They're just doing their job. They just come over, collect the honey from the flowers. If you see them around, don't be afraid to them. They're not going to do anything to you. They are just doing their job, bringing honey home. And then, everybody, let's get some bees.
1: Thank you. Jose, thank you so much for introducing me to your bees and telling me about their integral contributions in nature and in the food systems. This was such a fun episode. Thank you for coming on to the show and sharing your passion with us. With the Indie,
0: I'm Chilo Spilius. Thank you so much, Jose, for coming on the show and showing us around the beehives. It is so fascinating to not only hear about how integral bees are in our food systems, but also understand how our extreme weather plays such a major role in their livelihood. Now, up next, the Santa Barbara Summer Solstice is back this weekend with the theme Roots. The indie reporter Raymond Vasquez sat down with DJ Darla B, a longtime DJ for the parade, who walks us through the historical roots of summer solstice and what the crowd can expect this year.
3: On this episode of The Indie, I got the chance to talk with DJ Darla B. Voted Best Event DJ for the seventh year in a row and a Santa Barbara native, DJ Darla B. spoke with me about the upcoming Summer Solstice Parade and the impact that it has had on her growing up, as well as what we can expect to see in this year's celebration.
4: So the solstice festival, the summer solstice celebration is going to turn 50 in about a year, It's been around my whole life and more <laughs> and started off as a street performer, a mime walking down the street with a couple of his friends celebrating his birthday and grew into a weekend long celebration, bringing in thousands of people to our community. But it really started off small and snowballed. And always fascinated me, the whole story behind it and the concept and the creator, Michael Gonzalez, who performed in Santa Barbara and really gave the solstice its birth from his birthday. So I'm so pleased that this had transpired and it kind of represents Santa Barbara as much as we have our old Spanish days, we have our summer solstice celebration. So that was in the mid to late nineteen seventies. And when I was a baby, my parents put me on their back and waltzed down the street from there, you know, once I could walk, I was in the parade with them. And it was on a different part of Santa Barbara. It was on Cabrillo Boulevard, much smaller, homemade costumes, not floats, not piped in music, banging on some drums, very hippie, painting palm leaves and cardboard and sticking things on your hair and you know, just very DIY. And that was kind of what was cool is that people were really interacting street theater, street art, street performance with whoever was on the sidelines. And I just, as a child, that just fascinated me. I just thought this is the coolest thing ever. As a young person, I never missed a parade. I always wanted to be in the parade. If I wasn't watching it, I was in it. Eventually the parade was in the film Steel Big, Steel Little, which was filmed in Santa Barbara with Andy Garcia. And local musician Randy Tico, who was always at the end of the parade with kind of the grand finale and then this float and these live musicians on various percussion instrumentation. Once you heard and felt that beat, that was the end of the parade. And as a spectator and local, you would get up and you would join the parade. That was always kind of the local tradition. So Randy Tigo was in that movie and a bit of the Solstice Parade is filmed and in that movie and kind of just like a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. They're kind of dancing up the street, followed by um, these notable actors. Fast forward to these days and post-pandemic, we're able to do the parade and its park celebration in its entirety and... I'm just so happy about that because there's no difference between a real parade and a virtual parade. I mean, there is a huge difference.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Just to hear just how big of an impact the solstice can have not only on Santa Barbara, but even in something like a movie is amazing. What's your experience been with the festival and how long have you been a part of it, both as a participant and as the famous DJ Darla B?
4: (laughs) Love that. So like I said, yeah, my parents strapped me to their back as a baby and bounced me down the street. They were in costume, joining the parade. Some of the earliest photos of me in a parade dressed up with my parents was 1982. And my mom was an insect. She was an ant, a red ant with a fork in her hand. And my dad was a piece of cake. And she was running down the street trying to eat him with a fork. So that was on Cabrillo Boulevard. And that was one of the first times I actually remember it and also was documented. And then from there, I never missed watching the parade. And it got to a certain point where I said, I can't be on the sidelines anymore watching this. I've got to be in this. So I joined certain troops. I was everybody from Alice in Wonderland to a garden gnome, to a pirate, to a Egyptian goddess, a queen of denial. <laughs> Cleopatra, (laughs) space cadet, circus, a bumblebee, kind of a play on my middle name, which is B. So it was a queen bee and just joining the fun because, you know, it was just drawing me in. I couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore. I had to be in it. And from there, a group saw me DJing and they knew that I always loved to wear costumes. So they said, would you like to DJ on a float? Well, you usually walk the parade. So to get pushed up the street, with a microphone playing bumping tunes with a bunch of dancers in front of you and you're in costume seems like a pretty regal experience to me. So I've done that for the past seven years. It's just a privilege, but it's unlike any other experience and it's not like any other parade. So it's very unique to Santa Barbara. And I'm just glad that we can honor the memory of Michael Gonzalez, the founder and creator of the parade and his birthday weekend with this ongoing parade that's going to turn 50 years soon. It's really magical.
3: 50 years. That's amazing.
4: It is incredible. Yeah. Give or take a couple pandemic virtual parades. Yeah. <laughs> it got so it got so virtual that I curated some playlists and created a Spotify channel for the solstice celebration and one of them was the soul of the summer solstice and in that playlist, it has everything from the Brazilian beats to African drums to Randy Tico, as I mentioned earlier, who's in that soundtrack to Steel, Big Steel Little that focuses on our Summer Solstice Parade, to songs that I've played on that float for the dance group and all sorts of things. So just kind of highlighting the music within the parade. But there was a long time where there was not pre-recorded music. It wasn't a part of the parade. It was hard to do back in the day to have huge subwoofers and things on a float. Yeah. Technology wise.
3: So how are you going to be involved with the festival this year?
4: The day and night before the actual parade and then the whole weekend of celebrations. I'll be DJing in between bands for kids, families, Dancers kind of get you warmed up for what's to come the next day, but not too hardcore because we don't want you to be too tired to come back to the parade in the park. Now, the parade's always at noon, which is awesome. Usually the sun peaks out. Hopefully we don't have any June gloom. And then you'll see us on Santa Barbara Street once again this time. And the floats and the people and the puppets and the creations will walk, push, get their way up to Alameda Park park themselves. So you can come up and see all these creations. You know, some of them will be bumping tunes as I did last year. I just stayed in the float and DJ for two hours. I will be up at the stage around 1.40 or 2 PM playing for a little bit, playing for the La Boheme professional dance group. Those are the dancers um, that I get to DJ for on the float. They're going to do some of their routines for the crowd. We'll play in between bands for a little bit. Just give them a little taste of what was in the parade.
3: What can people expect to see and experience (laughs) this year at the festival?
4: So the theme this year is roots. And it's anything from roots of a tree. I saw root beer floats. Roots (laughs) of flowers. Or roots of the celebration. And that's how I'm taking it. Roots of, again, Michael Gonzalez. This mime street performer, creator and founder of this Experience and hearkening back to those late 70s, early 80s, where people just had this absolute freedom to let their freak flag fly in the middle of the street, be covered in mud, or paint their face. There was a lot of black and white with mimes in the parade. That was always kind of the underlying theme uh, due to the creator being a mime himself. So there was always this dual black and white paint, black and white checkerboard. That was kind of in all of the poster artwork. And I hope to see some tributes to Michael. That would be a nice kind of throwback to the roots of the parade or anything that just is silly. Silly, pared down, revolving around the sun. You know, some people think of it as a pagan holiday, the summer solstice. Hmm. From small to big, there's always something for everybody. And it can be an overwhelming experience to the senses, the noise, the colors, to the beats. Of course, I'm usually in the parade, so I have to look at photos to relive the experience.
3: Now, for someone like me who is always there watching the solstice on the side, how can people get involved in the festival, either during the festival or beforehand?
4: You can always come down to the workshop and volunteer. They have mask-making sections, courses on makeup, puppetry, Paper mache They have their own costumer seamstress on hand. If you know how to bang a nail with a hammer, you could be helpful. If you're not somebody that is particularly out there and want to perform, then carpenters are needed. People that can give water to performers are needed. People to push floats because it's all people-powered. It's a people-powered parade. But um, yeah, if you want to push a float or just come by and volunteer. There's always a job that they could give you. And if you want to help in other ways, you can make donations to the Summer Solstice Celebration to keep things going. But if it's always piqued your interest, you know, just come down and I'm sure you can get assigned something.
3: It definitely sounds like a fun time, just having a good time with other people and being creative.
4: Yeah, and it's the best group of people because They're creative, you're creative, you like all the same weird and kooky things and everything is art. There's no judgment and it's always a party. And it's such a wide range of ages and different demographics and different cultures all coming together for the love of the sun and summer and street theater, music and design. And it's just this great mishmash of Santa Barbara through the years. And this like once a year type of thing where you can just, like I said, let your freak flag fly is the best description of it. Because somebody could be a businessman during the day and in the parade, you, you would never know. Half dressed, painted in gold, you know, as a statue. <laughs> I've seen it before. <laughs> so you never know who's behind those masks in the parade. And that's what makes it really wild and fun and just something that I, I love to see. It's just very unique and very Santa Barbara. And there isn't a summer solstice parade in any other uh, city or state that is like this one.
3: Well, is there anything else you'd like to say or share?
4: Keep up with what's happening and follow on social media. And I just can't wait to wave and say hi to everybody along the parade route. And I'll see them in the park as well. And just keep solstice alive and keep the memory of Michael Gonzalez and his fantastic over-the-top creativity going because we got to do this 50 years is a coming and it's just been such a unique honor to be able to entertain people I mean I never thought I'd be DJing on a float my whole life
3: (laughs) well I certainly can't wait for the Solstice Festival thank you so much DJ Darla B for coming and speaking with us and letting us know a little bit more about what solstice really means
4: thank you raymond so much happy summer solstice
3: (laughs) happy summer solstice thank you so much again dj darla b for coming on the show to chat about the upcoming solstice parade this year You can join the celebration of the 49th annual Summer Solstice Parade on June 24th at the intersection of Ortega and Santa Barbara Street. The parade will travel on Santa Barbara Street and end at Alameda Park for the Solstice Festival, where there will be a full musical lineup on stage, as well as a variety of food and drink options. For more information, please visit www.solsticeparade.com.
0: That was DJ Darla B on the summer solstice. We're so excited to watch you bring the music beginning at the intersection of Ortega and Santa Barbara Street and all the way to Alameda Park this Saturday at noon. Next up on the show, there was a Bloomsday celebration that went down on June 16th at the James Joyce pub. Now, June 16th is a special day for the world of literature because the entirety of the book Ulysses by James Joyce took place on this day in Dublin, Ireland, and is now celebrated all over the world for its influence on literature and book censorship laws. Here is the indie reporter, Rebecca Fairweather, and author, Jim Buckley, who will walk you through just why the book was so controversial, yet influential, and how the community came out to celebrate its impact.
5: Around the world, James Joyce fans gather every June 16th to celebrate the controversial and revered novel, Ulysses. Bloomsday serves as a commemoration to the novel's groundbreaking influences on literature in the 20th century, and opens the conversation to book censorship laws around the world. The entire book takes place on June 16, 1904, that looks into the ordinary life and experiences of three characters in Dublin, Ireland. Fans of the novel celebrate by wearing costumes of their favorite characters and reliving scenes from the book, as well as recreating dishes and even visiting sites mentioned in Ireland authors, and actors who are fans of the novel can be found reenacting their favorite scenes from the book, honoring its history in global literature. The novel is infamous for its controversial past. First published in 1922, the book was deemed obscene. For the first 11 years post-publication, the novel was banned in the United States and censored on the global scale. Yet, over the years, Joyce's choices like the use of internal monologue and flow of consciousness writing have become some of the most acclaimed uses of literary devices in the 20th century. The Santa Barbara Bloomsday event was founded to commemorate the novel and its impact on literature, as well as unlocking a new love for writing amongst those unfamiliar with the text.
6: Well, hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on today. Exciting to be part of the Indie podcast. My name is Jim Buckley. I'm a local author of uh, nonfiction books for children. But I'm here to talk today about uh, an event called Bloomsday, which uh, my friend DJ Palladino, another indie veteran, are hosting on June 16th.
5: This book takes place on a single day, which is mind-boggling to think about. It's famous for depicting the ordinary life and experiences of three people in Dublin. So what makes Joyce's depiction of this one day and ordinary life make admirers turn to the novel in a special and unique way every June 16th?
6: Yeah, since the novel was published in 1922, about 10 years afterwards, some fans and friends of Joyce got together to read some of the portions of the book out loud at a big dinner they gave for him. And after World War II, the tradition picked up again, mostly in Dublin, where people would gather and read portions of the book together, sometimes acting it out, sometimes performing music along with it. And probably in the 80s, late 70s or 80s, it really became this worldwide phenomenon, and Bloom's days were held all over the world. And the reason uh, Ulysses was and is so important in world literature really is that it was essentially the beginning of the modern writing in the life of a very small group of people on one day in Dublin, June 16th, 1904, was to represent the entirety of human experience. The people in the novel are doing everyday things, but they're everyday things that we all do, thus sort of uniting the reader and, and and the characters. And the way that he presents a lot of the information that is happening to these people is in the form of, was then called stream of consciousness. And he really tried to, in words, on a page for the first time, illustrate and depict actual human thought.
5: Yeah, I love that you bring up the fact that this book has kind of transcended globally starting in Dublin, making its way all the way even to Santa Barbara. Readers from all over the world can kind of connect to this book and relate to it in many ways. So is the stream of consciousness and this kind of literary element that Joyce uses throughout the book, is that what classifies Ulysses as a literary masterpiece? Or is there something else?
6: Oh, there's much more to it. And, And that's what's great about it. He famously said, I spent seven and a half years writing this and I expect you to spend your lifetime reading it. He really tried to pack in as much as he could What's really unique about the book and what's really fun about our event um, on June 16th at the James Joyce pub is that each of the chapters, there are 18 chapters in Ulysses, and each of them is written in a different literary style, often with a very different point of view, and they all present different ways of expressing human experience and human emotion. There's straight narrative. Some of the ones, there's a dialogue. There's some that is written as a play. There's a whole chapter that really comes off almost kind of as a musical theater, the Circe chapter. So this is an entirely different way of expressing information. And and so not only in the way that he chose to express the information and tell the story, but also the things he wrote about, the universality of those themes. You, you don't have to have lived in Dublin to have walked down the street and wondered what people are doing near you. You don't have to have lived in 1904 to experience the sadness of a funeral or the confusion of losing a child or the pain of having some your wife cheat on you. all these things can happen to people everywhere. And so the universality of the themes using a literal universe of literary uh, formats is really what has made it so spectacularly popular around the world, although it didn't start out that way.
5: yeah, that leads into a great pivot into my next question, actually. yeah, I'm
6: good. I'm really good at segues.
5: <laughs> you mentioned that the book is kind of a universal journal in many ways. It depicts just everything from everyday life in the novel. So what makes this novel so controversial after its publishing in 1922?
6: Well, in 1922, the role was a different place because of the reality of Joyce's writing, talking about things that in those days, one did not talk about. So you didn't write about sex. You didn't write about cuckolding. You didn't write about parts of the body. And I don't know who's listening to the indie, so I'll just, you can imagine if you read it now and you look at it and you go, what? why were they, What is everybody worried about? But this is 1922. Things were a little weird. And so the book was uh, initially banned in the United States legally by several states and, and then by the United States, essentially illegal to own one. Of course, some copies slipped over. It was only published in an edition of a thousand copies by Sylvia Beach in Paris in 1922. And then some of those copies came over. There was an illegal, uh, unauthorized publication that was printed, tried to smuggle it into the United States, and it didn't make it in. And finally, Bennett Cerf and others in America took it to court. And a very wise judge in New York read it and said, this is fine. This is human beings. Publish it. And so in 1930, publishing was finally allowed in the United States. So it's really important, I think, as we read Joyce and Ulysses on Bloomsday and look back on a time when the government and people were trying to prevent us from experiencing literature and experiencing human, ex- you know, everything it is to be a person, that we're still seeing that happen today. And, and part of the reason we want to do Bloomsday is to stand up and talk out loud about uh, how horrible it is that this is happening. Fortunately, not around here, but many places around the country. Uh, so to stand up and read out loud a book that was, in fact, banned for some years by small minded people to, is part of the reason we're doing this. And so that's the story of of, of Ulysses. It, it has never really been questioned ever since in any significant way, because once people were able to read it and once it got beyond the small literary crowd that, was, that experienced it, it, it obviously has become the, if not one of the most important novels of the 20th century.
5: I'm looking forward to hearing and watching these actors kind of portray the words on the page in real life, especially in an environment that is just dedicated to the the author, James Joyce.
6: Well, dedicated to drinking, but yes, Yes. James Joyce is in there too. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) There's a lot of drinking in Ulysses. There's about, uh, I think there's four different scenes in pubs.
5: Well, it's Dublin. I mean.
6: (laughs) Exactly. Joyce actually claimed that he tried a couple of times. He could not walk across Dublin in 1904 on almost any direction and on any street without walking by at least one pub. He couldn't couldn't find a, a path that could get through without a pub.
5: So kind of on that point of, you know, actors coming to James Joyce pub and reading from the book, how else is Santa Barbara celebrating Bloomsday and how can our listeners join?
6: This is it. This is the entire celebration of Bloomsday on Friday, June 16th and we're going to have Irish music brought to you by the Folk Orchestra of Santa Barbara, which we're super excited to have them back. We're going to have some food. There's lots of food in Ulysses because, again, people eat food, so he eats food several times a day, and some of the food that Mr. Bloom eats is going to be served at the event, which is fun, and it's a voluntary fundraiser for the Library Foundation of Santa Barbara, which we hope, you know, be a way to encourage more people to get out and get to books and help uh, the Library Foundation. Lots of good reasons for people to come out, and Uh, We're really happy this year to uh, have some new readers from last year. We did this last year. We did a great job. It was really fun. Professor Enda Duffy, who is a longtime UCSB professor, and he is one of the worldwide scholars of Joyce and Ulysses. He brings enormous amounts of expertise to our creative processes, and we're really excited that he can take part this year. We asked him last year, but he was in Dublin on Bloomsday last year, so we couldn't make it. A wonderful local actress named Lark Bateau is going to be reading the part of Molly Bloom, The co-founder of the Box Tales Theater for Children, uh, Matt Tavanini, is going to be here. Matt's a great local actor. Lots and lots of people will be familiar with his work, and so we're happy to have him for the first time. If you have have kids in Santa Barbara, anytime in the last 30 years, you have seen Michael Katz, who performs as a storyteller in local schools. The Santa Barbara Film Festival uh, director Roger Derling returns for his second year at Bloomsday. He did a great job last year.
5: Making it more accessible, making it more easy for the public to understand the book and really get more knowledge of it is something that Bloomsday is dedicated towards. So I am hoping to ask you for a little bit of a sneak peek for what we can expect to hear.
6: Sure. I'm going to read from near the beginning. So the first chapter is called Telemachus. Stephen Daedalus, who was another character uh, in the book, very important. He was the main character and portrait of the artist, and now he appears again. And Stephen is talking to his friend Buck Mulligan. Buck Mulligan showed a shaven cheek over his right shoulder. God, isn't he dreadful, ponderous Saxon. He thinks you're not a gentleman. God, these bloody English, bursting with money and indigestion because he comes from Oxford. You know, Daedalus, you have the real Oxford manner. He can't make you out. Oh, my name for you is the best, Kinch, the knife blade. He shaved warily over his chin. He was raving all night about a Black Panther, Stephen said. Where's his gun case? A woeful lunatic. We in a funk. I was out here in the dark with a man I don't know, raving and moaning to himself about shooting a black panther. You saved men from drowning. I'm not a hero, however. If he stays here, I'm off. Buck Mulligan frowned at the lather on his razor blade. He hopped down from his perch and began to search his trouser pockets hastily. Scudder, he cried thickly. He came over to the gunrest and thrusting a hand, into Stephen's upper pocket, said, lend us a loan of your nose rag to wipe my razor. Stephen suffered him to pull out and hold up on show by its corner, a dirty crumpled handkerchief. Buck Mulligan wiped the razor blade neatly and then gazing over the handkerchief, he said, the Bard's nose rag, a new art color for our Irish poets, snot green. You can almost taste it, can't you?
5: The 101 annual Bloomsday celebration happened on June 16th at the James Joyce Pub in downtown Santa Barbara, where attendees heard from Jim Buckley and others reenacting the lives of Ulysses with a Guinness in hand. Thank you for listening to The Indie. I'm Rebecca Fairweather.
0: Thank you, Jim, for coming on the podcast today. It is a pleasure. And that is all for this week. Thank you so much for tuning into The Indie, and to stay up to date with the team, be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Indie Pod. From the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent, I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg. And as always, we'll see you next week.